Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Camp. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, its sequel, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, uh, and the upcoming third, yet-to-be-revealed Banneker Bones adventure. Uh, these are the stories of 11-year-old biracial boy detective Banneker Bones and his cousin Ellicott Skullworth as they ride on jetpacks and use all manner of gadgets to save Latimer City uh, from monsters such as giant robot bees, alligator people, and, and the third yet-to-be-revealed monster. So if you enjoy the Athena Protocol, if you're the sort of person that likes your Mission Impossible James Bond Batman-esque adventure, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees is the book for you. It is available as a paperback, uh, an audiobook narrated by the exquisite David Radke, and the ebook is free free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some uh, novels for older readers, such as my young adult novel, All Together Now, a Zombie Story, and All Right Now, a Short Zombie Story. And then, of course, The Book of David, which is a five-volume serial horror novel uh, written in the style of Stephen King. It's about an atheist who purchases a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions involving flying saucers. It's a good time. Uh, the further it goes, it's crazier. The, the crazier it gets, it's five chapters chapters long. Um, and I say chapters, the fifth chapter is the longest book I've yet written. Uh, so it is uh, just a, a long, suspenseful horror novel that builds as you go and gets wildly out of control by book five. And I figure that's your fault because you had four opportunities to stop reading. Uh, and if you're still with me, I just go as crazy as uh, as that story will allow for, which is, which is just out there. Uh, if you're curious, you want to dip your toe in the book of David the Book of David Universe, you can download the first chapter as an ebook for free whenever you're watching or listening to this. So download chapter one, The Book of David by Robert Kent. If you enjoy it, come back and see me for chapters two, three, four, and five with money. Uh, as always, to keep up with what's going on with the show, what's going on with me, what's going on with authors and publishing professionals cool enough to appear on Middle Grade Ninja, go to middlegradeninja.com. Uh, I've got interviews with hundreds of authors, publishing professionals, and other folks that you want to read, as well as the archive of all of the podcast episodes and a listing of upcoming guests. So that's it. Uh, my guest today, I couldn't be more thrilled. We're going to be talking with Shamim Sarif. Uh, Shamim, how are you this afternoon? I am doing very well. Thank you very much, Robert. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, thanks so much for making the time. We were talking just a moment ago that, that we're sandwiched in here between a book launch party you said in New York and a book launch party there in Toronto, plus you're starting a new movie. Yeah. Do you get a day off this week or are you just going? <laughs> <laughs> no, there's no, there hasn't been a day off for quite a while. But you know what? I'm not going to complain because, uh, you know, so often we have a lot of days off as writers and directors and, uh, and they're, they're not necessarily what we choose. So I'm just going with it. Also, periods of, of more days off than you'd, you'd care for. <laughs> uh, if you would, uh, give uh, esteemed audience a little bit of an overview of your background, both as a filmmaker and an author. Sure. Well, I, uh, I'm lucky enough to tell stories in, in more than one medium. So I started out writing short stories, um, and then my first novel, The World on Scene, got published. Uh, and around the same time, I was writing screenplays for film, because that was always something that I, that I loved and was interesting to me. So I've kind of pursued parallel careers as a novelist, screenwriter, and then segued into being a film director. I've made uh, three features and one documentary. 
Um, and the features are I Can't Think Straight, The World Unseen, and Despite the Falling Snow, most recently, with Rebecca Ferguson and Charles Dance, which I, all of which I wrote and directed, and which I was lucky enough to get 47 awards between between all these three. Um, and well, 47 awards, I don't know that we can we can chalk all of those up to luck. Oh, okay. <laughs> <give you> a couple. <laughs> and then um, and then in the meantime, I've also I've written three novels, the fourth of which is The Athena Protocol, which is which is the one that uh, is launching right now in the US and Canada. That's right the there. very one. I have my own copy right here. There we are. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and the Athena Protocol is is my first foray into the thriller genre, um, and it's it's about an, a rogue agency run by three very successful women who take on human trafficking and issues that that deal with women and children that governments don't have the time or budget to deal with, and they run a team of younger female agents who are the ones that get in there in the field and, and deal with these um, these nasty specimens. It's a wonderful, thrilling tale. I, I, I enjoyed it. In fact, let's just, uh, we're, we're going to talk about a little bit of everything as, as much as you'll humor me for today. I want to pick your brain about filmmaking, writing. I know you're writing a, a musical. Um, so all kinds of uh, questions for you about all of that stuff. But let's start with the Athena Protocol. Um, so I guess uh, my first question for you is, why is now, Why? what made you, after writing for adults, making movies for adults, what made you want to, uh, write a young young adult novel. Sure. Well, you know, the, the idea for the Athena Protocol came to me from from going to tech conferences and just seeing uh, people who've made a lot of money, who've made their mark in the world, maybe in technology and whatever it is. Now they're starting to want to kind of turn their attention to the world's big issues like hunger and climate change. And so I was thinking about how you would deal with something like slavery, trafficking, because issues to do with women and children. Also, the LGBTQ community have always been very important to me to, to highlight in my storytelling. I never thought of the Athena Protocol specifically as a YA novel. I didn't think, oh, I'm going to write a YA novel. I just I knew it was going to be an action-adventure thriller. Um, but then I thought about writing it from the perspective of Jessie, who's the youngest agent on the team. She has a lot to learn. She's the most immature. But I wanted to have somebody who could have a really interesting character arc. You know, she's super smart. Uh, maybe not as emotionally smart as she is intelligently smart, uh, but that's something she learns to, to, along the way in interacting with her team. So I think because it's from her perspective, um, and there's a little sarcasm, there's a little humor, there's the stresses with her mom, uh, I think I guess it fit also into the YA category as well as just a regular adult book. Yeah, I agree. I um I, I ask that question on a regular basis, and yet I also kind of hate it just a little bit because there is no young adult story, there is no middle grade story. There's stories that happen to feature enough details that you can, when you go to shelve them, you can put them in a place where they're likely to find track the, the readers that would like them. But I think the Athena Protocol would appeal to readers who aren't yet teens and readers who are well beyond their teens. Yeah, I mean, it's, well, it's only been out a couple of days, but, you know, the first few reviews that I've been getting by email and on Amazon and Goodreads have been, you know, five stars from people who are not actually young adults. So I think women more in their 30s, 40s, a um, couple I know in their 20s. So it's, it seems so far to be cutting across ages because, you know, there's a range of ages with the six women in the novel, too. So well, I assume at this point you've got a built in audience that that will look forward to whatever you decide to create next. Well, there is that. And they've been incredibly supportive of me over the years so yeah i'm really lucky that you know i can't think straight in the world unseen particularly 
uh, grew this amazing fan base. I think I think there was a dearth of stories for for uh, women, for women of color, uh, for young LGBTQ women, um, and and young men too. And I think that that those early stories, uh, I can't think straight in particular, as a book and a, and a movie, appealed to a lot of people who didn't have those kinds of role models or people like them that were being represented in movies and films. Now representation is a lot wider, but it but it wasn't at the time. So that, that really stood out and I think it, it made a huge impact. So a lot of those fans have followed me on my journey up till now, which is wonderful. Let me ask you a dumb question in the hope of prompting you uh, to give a, a great answer. <laughs> Why? Uh, and I think the answer is uh, sort of implicit within the story, but again, dumb question. Um, why uh, was it important to you that all of the founders of the Athena Protocol, all of the agents, everyone involved, be women and many of them women of color and also uh, that their missions uh, surround, uh, not exclusively, but, but very much around um, freeing and, and doing right in the world for women? Yeah. Um, look, I think the diversity element came because that's what, that's what my life looks like. And I think it's what a lot of people's lives look like. And it's, it's now the representation is getting stronger uh, on screen and, and, and in corporate environments in real life. But it really, when I, you know, the last 20, 30 years that I've been around, that was not the case. Um, and so I felt a kind of responsibility to put out there the kind of work that reflected me, that reflected the world I wanted to live in. Um, and so hence the diversity in having women particularly. Um, and then the, the fact that they are women helping other women. You know, the, we live in a kind of bubble where, you know, I, I get to be in Toronto, I'm in London, I'm in New York, it's LA, it's, it's all fantastic and it's liberal and I'm surrounded by people who think very similarly to me in many respects. But much of the world is still not like that. And I think, you know, 50% of the world's resources, i.e. women, are being underused in, in a, you know, in a large chunk of the world. You know, places that you can obviously think of places like Saudi Arabia where women don't even have the right you know, to, to, to vote or drive or work or anything without the permission of their husbands or going out on the street without being covered. And then that carries through into so many different countries where women don't have the cultural or legal rights over their bodies, over the way they use their time. So I felt like women needed that helping hand. And, and the Athena Protocol, um, you know, it's about this group of agents and they, they work internationally. This, this one is set a little bit in Africa and West Africa, a little bit in Eastern Europe, mostly in Eastern Europe. And the next one, because there's a sequel, will be in India. So, you know, I think there are so many interesting places to explore the cultural binds that, that, that women and girls still find themselves uh, restricted by. And when, uh, when can we look forward to reading the sequel? The sequel is out um, in October 2020. So literally same time next year. See you again. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that's kind of the two book deal with HarperCollins, and they. So I've just delivered the first draft of that, and I'm working on edits shortly, and that's called the Shadow Mission. But it's also going to keep the same characters in play. It'll still be Jesse, Hal, and Caitlin working um, to bring down um, another dodgy group of people. <laughs> Good. There's 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 a surplus of dodgy people in the world, <laughs> so they need to get out there and do their best. Um, so okay, so that's definitely a second book, which I guess you're writing just like in your in your break 
<laughs> your breaks between filming and, uh, and, and and writing your musical and everything else you've, you've got going on. Uh, and then is it your hope that this would be kind of a recurring series that, that goes on forever? Do you have some planned ending point in your head? I would love that to be a recurring series. For me, I think that the there are two elements for me to, to the Athena Protocol. One is the mission, which I think is, you know, it's the, the core plot of how are they going to bring down this human trafficker. Um, and there are the reversals and the twists and the turns. But the, the, the most important thing to me is the character development. And I think with these six women, they've all got complex backgrounds. They, I think that the, the potential for them to grow character-wise through a series of novels or a TV series or a series of films, whatever that might be, is, is infinite, you know? And I think that's what, for me, makes it really compelling is that while they're going through all of these missions, they're learning so much about themselves, about each other, about how to work together. And for me, that's what makes it really exciting as a series. So, yeah, I, I, I could see this going on a while. And I, certainly at the end of the second book, too, Jesse makes another turn um, into a different kind of uh, worldview, which, is, which I think will keep it all sparky and exciting. So I just heard you say she becomes a supervillain. Is is that right? No. <laughs> That's not what I said, Robert. <laughs> but yeah, oh, we'll have to I, wait till next October to find out. We can't we can't spoil the book this early yeah. on. <laughs> it's a toll. Let's say that, that that happens. So well, let me ask you this because you. Um, uh, I'm assuming this is inspired by a love of things like uh, Charlie's Angels, Mission Impossible, James Bond, that kind of thing. Were there any particular direct influences? Well, listen, I, I've grown up with two, you know, I have, we have two teenage boys who are well, 20 and 16 now. So we've watched every action movie under the sun over the last 15 years. You can be sure of that. But the ones that really um, stuck with me were the ones like, uh, I think of Athena more equating to the Bourne series, if, if anything, the Bourne identity and, and onwards because there's a character journey involved. Um, that's uh, Die Hard, Lethal Weapon, those kinds of movies that have that character arc that is so crucial to the plot, I think were really exciting to me. And I hadn't really felt that I'd seen that with women. And I hadn't seen women who go through the kinds of things that the Athena agents go through and feel the fallout. And I think that when you've got young women fighting trafficking, seeing you know difficult things, uh, fighting for their lives on a daily basis, getting hurt um, and recovering. There, there's a fallout to that emotionally. And I, and I wanted to have a group of women who are there for each other. They fight, they argue, they've got their differences, but they're also there to kind of help each other through those traumatic times. And I thought that would be really an interesting thing to explore, which I felt I hadn't seen so far in, in adventure and, and thriller books. Another dumb question, because it's, it's one that answers itself, but I, I want to hear your perspective on it. Um, but um, as I was really occurred to me that this is, you know, the what's the word I'm looking for? The basic framework, the pitch is not um, something that we've never heard before. We, we, we know we've, we've got. Uh, if, if I may use profanity on my own show, little badasses uh, that are going to go out there in the world and, 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 and do badass stuff. Um, We've seen that before, but the focus is not just that because there's Kit, who is Jesse's mother, uh, involved within there, and there's a lot of there's a lot of emotional stuff that these stories 
tend to gloss over a little bit. You mentioned, yes, okay, a lethal, lethal weapon, the original one, had a nice character arc. Uh, and then by two, I wasn't really sure what was happening with the characters. And by, by four, like, Danny Glover's never going to retire. Get out of here. <laughs> so why was it uh, essential to include these character arcs? And also, follow-up question to that, how will you keep that going through the series when Jesse becomes a supervillain with powers? <laughs> Well, listen, I think, I think, you know, you touched on it when you said that, you, you know, you can have smart, badass women who, who know how to fight their way out of trouble, think their way out of trouble, code their way out of trouble. But what, is, what, is, what do they do when they get home and they have to interact with their mom, who's also the founder of Athena? Or, um, you know, and they have those clashes that all mothers and daughters do. Or they have, you know, what, a, a clash with one member of the team and, and suddenly they're out speaking to each other. And that, that becomes a real issue between Hala and Jesse through this book. How do you repair that friendship? Especially when you're under so much pressure at the same time. It's not like they're going to work in an office and then coming home, having a plate of pasta and having to think about how they get on again. They're literally having to fight for each other and now against each other. It's, it, it, for me, that's what the, the, the real uh, excitement is in this thriller it's it's how do these women emotionally get on with each other and figure out their messy personal lives as well as the craziness of being in the field because you know that's what agents do it's not like they live in these solitary worlds where they're just badass at home and they're badass on the field it's you know they go home and they're somebody's daughter or somebody's friend or somebody's partner and the stresses there are stresses associated with that and i think ongoing those are those are infinite numbers of stories that could be really exciting to explore you know uh caitlin one of jesse's teammates has been in the military in the u.s and she she served in iraq and she has you know a recurring ptsd that that's something that she has to figure out how to deal with apart from the fact that she's so competent in the field emotionally there are still issues that she needs to get through um, i don't want to spoil uh but there's the uh inciting incident uh, where that, that, that sets Jesse off a little bit on her journey uh, in our, on our opening action sequence where she makes a, a decision uh, that then is going to haunt her. Um, so without spoiling, there, there's some murder involved. Uh, and there's just real fallout and repercussions from that. So how do you prepare for that? And why is it important to you uh, to show that aspect? Well, I think, you know, that's something that I've learned in my storytelling because I've always been very character driven. Um, and therefore, you know, I think character is conflict usually. And, 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 you know, I like page turners, even in a literary novel like my previous ones, like The World Unseen. But, but with the Athena Protocol being a thriller, I really wanted it to start with a, a big conflict. And I didn't want that conflict to be, here's a problem over here, let's go solve it. It's not just an external problem. It's the fact that Jesse crossed the line. She broke orders in a rogue agency. And as Lee says, this is a rogue agency. We cannot have a rogue agent. We've all got to live by our, the code that Athena sets. So if in chapter one, Jesse's gone over that line and gets fired from Athena, uh, which unfortunately everybody who's reviewed the book has mentioned. So <laughs> I figure we might as well <laughs> just go with it. You know, by chapter two, she's already got an uphill struggle to, to get back, not only to help the team bring down the human trafficker, but she's not on the team, so she's not really legally allowed to help them. So now she's got to claw her way back, uh, do it on her own. She's getting deeper into trouble without her team watching her back. Um, and at the same time, she's going after the human trafficker while her team are coming after her. So I thought 
how many more obstacles can we pile on this girl and let's see how she deals with it because she's a smart girl so let's let's put her under some pressure well, at least through the first uh, few chapters, she still has all of her hands, all of her feet. <laughs> plenty plenty of ways to hurt her yet. <laughs> well, uh, what did I, because, well, one, um, it was such a wonderful um, moment of, uh, of, of debate for the reader, because again, without spoiling, I'm on board with what Jesse did. I, 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 my biggest complaint was they didn't kill more people. Yeah. <laughs> were, they go in there with sleeping darts. I'm like, sleeping darts? No, not these guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we don't feel, I don't think we feel terribly bad about what she's done because we understand, but the thing for me was to understand, not judge the characters, just understand where they're coming from. Then, you know, if you as a reader want to say that was just bad, Jesse deserves to be fired, that's your call. And if you say, you know what, I, I would have done the same. I think that's great. As long as we're understanding where Jess, what Jesse was feeling at that moment, then I've done my job as, as the as the author. Oh, I would have done the same, and I also felt that Jesse deserved to be fired. <laughs> I wanted it in both ways. There you go. That's as much <laughs> as I could dance around it without just flat out telling a steamed audience <laughs> what happened. So pick up the book. Uh, you're 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 going to get excited. Um, I wanted to ask you, though, a little bit about uh, what that plot construction, why is it useful to you to have Jesse as, I mean, we, we go to pains to establish this uh, ultra elite force. Um, so two questions I had about that were, one, why immediately break Jesse off from it and have her go a little rogue? Uh, and two, why does that force need to be outside of, of, of like a government branch? It's not it's an MI6 that James Bond's a part of. It's, it's, right. it's, not, it's not that. Um, it's more like group Batman where everybody is tossing in their money and, and doing it secretly on the, on the sly. Uh, so yeah, both those questions. Why is it important that Jesse is rogue and why is it important that the Athena protocol is not a government institute? Yeah. Well, I, if I'll, I'll, I'll do it backwards. So I'll say, well, the, you know, for Athena, the, the, I think it came from what the meaning of it was to the founders and they specifically wanted to deal with things that they felt governments were not dealing with because, you know, Lee is a, is a, you know, technology tycoon with a ton of money. Peggy is a former U.S. ambassador who's worked within the halls of government. And Kit is a, is a, is a British former music star who's also been out there campaigning for women and children. But none of them feel that the work that they've done has made a significant difference. It makes a little difference here and there. So for them, they're, they're trying to deal with the stuff that government specifically won't deal with. And it's hard to imagine CIA or MI6 or MI5 setting up a black ops um, you know, division specifically to deal with human trafficking or, you know, girls being married off underage or whatever the issues are that a lot of women and girls face. Um, so I think that's why they, it's, it's the, the meaning of their mission that means that they have to operate outside the government. And it also adds another layer of danger because these are people that are going to be completely in jail or worse if they get found out in taking vigilante justice into their own hands. So again, it added another layer of conflict that I really liked. Um, and then in terms of Jesse going rogue from the rogue agency, <laughs> that was really for me built out of uh, Jesse's character arc because I wanted her to be uh, somebody who learned a big lesson in this book and who changed significantly from who she was at the beginning as she learned to grow up and mature. And I think at the beginning, she's a little arrogant. She's part of this elite force. She's probably the most talented agent on the force. And she's a little bit 
you know, they can't do without me. And when she finds that they can, it's a big shock to her ego and her system. And then she has to really work her way back onto the team, prove herself and earn back the trust that she's broken with her teammates. Um, and for me, character-wise, I just thought that was a, a really exciting story to follow. So, yeah, that was why. Yeah, they, I they can't really do it without Jesse. <laughs> oh, no, and that was the other you know i guess i just like to keep challenging myself as a writer i'm like okay how are we going to now get through this where jesse has to be an integral part of solving this without making the others look like they don't know what they're doing and i think you know it was to find a twist halfway through the book that made it oh okay you could imagine that the rest of athena had missed this detail um but that was now crucial and that jesse has the details off so i can't say any more than that without spoiling the plot no, we're we're walking a very dangerous line, coming right up to it. Um, wanted to wanna, I wanted to follow that up though with uh, how much research did you do in creating the Athena protocol? And because it's very well thought out, I I I, I bought that this I, could be a thing if 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 billionaires were more benevolent. <laughs> well, we might not know. It could be a thing. Um, but I That's think, well, listen, I think, I think some billionaires are benevolent. You know, I, I think about something like Bill Gates, who's, who's going out there and solving issues to do with sanitation now, for example, or malaria, that, that really no government was tackling. So, you know, I think that potential is there. And, and, and as more individuals and corporations get wealthier and wealthier, I hope that they take that responsibility very seriously. You know, it's something that I think is very important. Um, and, you know, I've droned on so long, I forgot what your actual question was. David, uh, Robert, sorry. <laughs> oh, I, uh, I, I was just asking about uh, how much research, although that is uh, an interesting point. Cause you, you know, you were at the TED Talks. I assume you've, you've been in the room with some billionaires now and again. I have indeed. And, you know, and look, there are, I've, been in, I've been in the room over the years with billionaires who, who um, have part, lived the party life. I haven't stayed in that room very long, I can tell you, because it does nothing for me where it's just kind of, the conspicuous consumption and the spraying bottles of champagne, whatever, that kind of world does not appeal in the least to me. And I, and I think that's for me where I, I began to formulate my idea that when you have uh, wealth, when you have influence, celebrity, that there comes with that kind of a certain responsibility to stand up for something, to vocalize what you believe in. And I found that the kinds of people who were attending TED were people who were interested in, in the issues facing the world and how they could be part of that. Not always, but, but most of the time. And so those kinds of people I just find really interesting. And I think, you know, the people who've made a lot of money building their own companies generally have incredible skills with problem solving and, and building companies, uh, you know, um, systems, all of that kind of thing. And when they turn their attention to doing that in, in, the, in the nonprofit sector, you know, the, the results can be pretty great. Um, also with the Athena Protocol, I, I should just mention that we've always tried to, with our with our books and movies, do charity premieres or to give back in some way, uh, rather than waiting to become a billionaire, which may or may not happen. <laughs> you have to sell an awful lot of books. Um, you know, uh, my wife and I have always tried to find ways to do that. And so with the Athena Protocol specifically, because it touches on human trafficking in its core uh, plot, we teamed up with a with a, a, a wonderful charity called Headwaters Relief that that helps to educate survivors of disaster areas about the dangers of human trafficking and how to avoid it. Because in um, in areas like Nepal after the hurricane, or in New Orleans after Katrina, you know the incidence of trafficking goes up hundreds, 
of times because people prey on people who've just lost their homes, they've lost their businesses. Sometimes these kids have lost their families and they become very vulnerable to human trafficking. So Headwaters does amazing work with volunteering and with uh, educating kids about that, often using stories and books. So, uh, so when, whenever anybody buys a copy of the Athena Protocol through the Amazon links on my site, I will donate my affiliate fees to Headwaters. So that was kind of like a small way to, for us to kind of chip in and make a difference. Good. So anybody that's uh, watching or listening to this, buy, buy it through your website, which is? Which is shamimsarif.com. That's there you go. That way, not only are you going to get a great story, you're going to do some good in the world. There you go. We just thought that it's a, it's a small way. You know, nobody pays any more, but any affiliate commission that I get from Amazon or IndieBound will go straight to Headwaters Relief. And any uh, affiliate link of mine that you click on, that money will go straight toward my mortgage. But I aspire. Should <laughs> never apologize for, for trying to make money as authors because you know that keeps us keeps us entertaining people and doing the work we do. Well, I hope that uh, lots of billionaires buy copies of the Athena Protocol and read it and get inspired, and we we make this to be uh, to be a, a real deal. Um, I wanted to ask you, well, I've got a lot of questions about the writing of this, but let's start with the opening line, because I'm a sucker for a great opening. Um, I, uh, I I try to drill it uh, into my head, as well as the head of any writing students I have, that if you don't nail your opening, don't worry about your middle or your ending. <laughs> that's not going to be a problem. Uh, I don't do this often, but I'm going to read just a paragraph of your own book to you, because I love this opening line. Uh, so here it is. Sometimes I wonder if the world might just look better through a rifle scope. Crisper, clearer, narrowed down, less messy. I love that. I love that opening perspective. Why was that the best place to open this novel? And how long did you spend coming up with that opening? You know, I felt I wanted something that took you straight into Jesse's head. And I, Jesse is, uh, is a spy looking down the barrel of a gun. You're into the into the mission without knowing what why is she looking? I wanted to have questions come up. Why is she looking through a rifle scope? Who is she to be looking through a rifle scope and who's she pointing at? These are all the things that occur to us when we hear that. But I also wanted to bring us into the head of a young woman who hasn't got the world figured out. And so I thought it might be nice that for her, looking through this rifle scope is not just something tense to do before a mission, but something that actually is a relief. It kind of brings the world into focus and she doesn't have to think about all the messy stuff out there. So now we're thinking, here's a girl who hasn't quite figured out the world, but she hasn't figured out when she's looking down the barrel of a gun. I don't know about you, but for me, I'm asking 15,000 questions already in my head. So I'm hoping that a reader will want to go on to the next line in the next paragraph and see what's going on with, with Jesse. Yeah, no, right away. I, I know the type of character that we're dealing with. I'm encouraged to know more. Now, if the next couple of lines are, and that's why I want to take out a bunch of innocent people. Oh, well, I don't know about that, but <laughs> so there, there is a little bit more needed and, and we get there quickly. It's, it's a wonderful opening. So how long did you spend on that? Or was that always the first line? It wasn't, no. I, I had started with, a, with a, a paragraph that was a little bit more descriptive of the surroundings, the smells, because I also wanted to bring it into Jesse's head. But I think I was doing it in a little bit of a more literary way, which I didn't. I don't think it would have been bad, but I think this came around when I was doing this my major second round of edits when I I finished my first draft, and I thought let's this 
this is an exciting story. Let's get straight into this um, moment. And I think it may also have been influenced a little bit by my filmmaking uh, career, because there's a way in which an image, you know, paints a thousand words. And I thought if anywhere, if there was anywhere where that could cross over into a novel, it should be the first line of a thriller, um, where you know you can almost see that that's the that's the view that you have. You don't know where you are, you don't know what the operation is, but you know that you're in the middle of something uh, that's going to get exciting pretty quickly. So presumably, then, when you make the the movie version, there might be a title card of this studio. These guys put up the money. This these folks did this. And then that will be the, the opening shot, I assume. You never know. And then, you know what? Uh, after all that, it'll probably, you know, start out with the rain swept street in London. Who knows? Who knows? How <laughs> now that I've written a perfect movie line, let's hope it gets in there. <laughs> I'll have to see when I write the script. And the Athena Protocol is in uh, production as a movie now, right? Or is in some some form of development? Is, there, is maybe the right term? It's in development, I would say, not not production as yet. We've, we've, you know, I was really lucky again with the early reviews. The trade reviews were exceptional. So, you know, based on that, before my agent even had time to go out, there were a few companies in Hollywood which contacted us to say, you know, let's talk about these. So, we're in exclusive negotiations with one uh, right now, and I hope that works out. And if that does, then we will develop it as soon as possible for a TV or or feature film. I assume you would be attached to direct, or at least at the very least willing. That's part of the negotiation, you know, because it's interesting because for me, I've always done our, our movies very independently under my own production companies. So I've written and directed everything. With this, I think the canvas of the Athena Protocol is, is rather bigger, and I, I think the budget would be bigger than, than maybe budgets we've done in the past. Um, but, but having said that, you know, I, I think I've got the you know, hopefully the credibility and the experience to, to be involved in this. So, yes, writing, uh, you know, the first draft of the screenplay of the pilot is very important to me. So, um, well, next question for that would be then knowing that you you've already made multiple films, award winning films um, and, and had quite a bit of success in that arena. Why was it uh, ideal for you to start this off as a series of novels as opposed to a screenplay? That, that you put into production immediately? Um, I think it was just, I saw, I felt the novel quite, quite strongly. And, and, I, and I hadn't written the novel for, for several years since Despite the Falling Snow, because I'd been busy, um, you know, write, writing and directing these three movies. And, and I hadn't actually sat down and written the novel and I, and I kind of missed it. I felt that I wanted to, um, you know, have that experience again of, of being really within a character's head and building, you know, using words to weave together that story. So it, it just came naturally to me to, to do that first. Does that impact you when you're uh, writing, knowing that obviously this is a very cinematic concept uh, and, and have, I'm sure it was never far from your mind that, hey, this might make a movie one of these days. Does do you start thinking about budget concerns when you're writing? Like, I'd love to do this. Well, oh, we'll never get the money for that. Maybe, maybe <laughs> a little less dramatic on the action. Does that does that play a role? Uh, no, it doesn't. I try to put that out of my mind when I'm writing the book because you know what? You're, I don't want my imagination to be limited at all. Having said that, you know, I'm I'm not the kind of writer who is thinking about how big I can make this explosion or, you know 
how many rockets I can have falling out of the sky. I'm pretty much character driven. So even a lot of the tension and action in this book is character driven. So, you know, Jessie may end up getting into a fight because she said the wrong thing to the wrong person rather than because there was a random person on the street. You you know what I mean? I, I don't like coincidences. I like everything to be character driven. So a lot of the action is manageable. It's often hand to hand fighting. It's breaking out of situations. It's um, climbing, uh, you know, hacking, doing some really exciting stuff that bring our characters' strengths to, to bear. Um, but no, I don't think about the budget. I think about the budget, of course, when you end up doing the screenplay and the, and the TV show and whatever. But I try not never to compromise on what the vision is. But there's, you know, if you, I think independent film has been a good training for how do you work within the confines of a certain budget or a certain uh, world to, without without compromising your creative vision and, and you know I think I've gotten kind of uh, good at creatively managing that process. And that being said, I didn't think there was anything in here that would be so wildly out of control for a budget that I mean probably couldn't make it. Uh, just you and two other people on the <laughs> on pizza money, but <laughs> I think you could probably get this funded without it being uh, a massive uh, ridiculous undertaking. Absolutely. It's not something that relies on the special effects and the visual effects for, for it to be meaningful. You know, there are some movies out there that you just go to the cinema to see the explosions or to see how they've managed to do this huge, huge, huge thing. Um, and, the, and, and the character development is very much secondary. And for me, this, the character is everything. So I think around that, the way the fights and the, and the chases are, are filmed, is very, I think it's important to make them look authentic and real. Um, and that's probably where the budget would be and the time and, and the, the skill to put into to having the actors work with it. But it doesn't have to be, you know, a mega. There, there are no UFOs flying in and, and exploding. Well, not in this draft, but not I'm hopeful draft. that after uh, we talk a little bit, I'm going to convince you <laughs> that when the movie comes, we need some, we need some flying saucers. <laughs> well, I've got, you know what? Uh, now I'm torn because I've got a couple more questions for you about making movies, but everybody that listens to the show knows I at some point have to ask you because I ask every guest. Shamim yeah. um, uh, Sarif, have you ever seen a flying saucer and do you believe in them? I know only underneath my teacup, uh, I'm afraid, Robert. So, uh, no, I haven't seen a flying saucer. I do, I believe in them. I don't disbelieve in them. Let's put it that way. I don't think I've actively thought about whether I believe in flying saucers, but I do think, as Shakespeare said, there are more things than heaven and earth than we can conceive of. And so I never say never. Gotcha. Um, oh, they're out there. <laughs> That's another discussion. <laughs> they're out there and they need to be in the Athena Protocol 2 or okay. at least 3. <laughs> well, we only have Kit, who's a British rock star who likes her her cup of tea. So she may well take her tea with a saucer. So, and when she gets upset, she may well throw one. So that could be the end. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when you're uh, when you're looking at adapting your your own book into a movie, because obviously you, you did that with your first novel, I was it Cat Think Street. Yes. Um. So when you've spent all this time with your characters in your head, and you've got you know how they sound, you know how they look, and even the world's greatest actress isn't going to come in and do exactly one hundred percent what you had in mind. And and if she did, you should probably fire her because you need somebody that's contributing. 
So how uh, how does that impact you when you're directing uh, something that, that that was exclusively yours that you've now got to share? Well, you know, it is weird because you do think that as the author, I'm going to be all very kind of, oh, you know, Katya has to look like this or Tala has to look like that and behave like that. But I'm very much about finding actors who can work with me and get the essence of the book. And that's why it's very important to me to, you know, when I worked with Lisa Ray with Shreepal Sheth or Rebecca Ferguson in the last movie, it was important for me to meet with them and, and to talk about the story with them just to get a sense of, Two things, do they get the essence of who this character is and how would they approach it? And, and the second thing is how do I communicate with them and do we gel uh, creatively? Because you know, when you're on a film set under pressure, you wanna be able to direct and have actresses who are really going to um, be able to respond to that under, under the fast conditions that you work under. And, um, and I think my, I was very keen to understand and to realize that I cannot act. I can't light as well as my director of photography can light. You know, I can't put together a costume like my costume designer. So while I have an overall vision um, and a very strong vision, it's very important for me to let those actresses bring something to the table. And if I've got an idea of how a scene should be played um, or what the, the character is feeling, I'll, I'll communicate that. But I'll also let the actor come in and say, actually, what if she played this? you know, that she wasn't that upset, or that she was kind of flippant. And I'd be like, yeah, okay, let's do that. Because I always like to see what comes out of that creative collaboration. I think that's the most exciting thing about making a film. Completely different from novels, where you're master of the universe, but that's the, that's the whole point of making a film. So if you're gonna deny that collaboration with some very talented people, I don't think you should be making movies. And is that part of what uh, brings you switching back and forth a little bit? Is that desire to sometimes be 100% master of the universe before oh, you have to share again? Oh, for sure. There's always... <laughs> I'm lucky I get to do both. Very different skills. But there's a time after a time when you've finished a film and it's been nonstop people having to inspire them to, to lead, to answer questions, to manage. Uh, there's a time when I'm really happy to sit back in my little writing cabin. There's just me, characters on the page, Anybody gets irritating to me, I can write them out of the book or pull them off, and then uh, and and it's it's that quiet writer time. I, I I cherish that too. Cinematography is always perfect. There's no there's no need to wait for the lighting. It's there. <laughs> it doesn't take twenty five hours to set up a shot. You know, it's like yeah. <laughs> soundtracks, whatever's on Spotify. Let's do this. <laughs> exactly. So, um, have you noticed, are there um, uh, little things that sentences, sentence structure, sentence word choices, things that would go into your author style? Uh, and are they a literary equivalent of your filmmaking style, or are those two completely different things? That's a very good question. Um, well, I think my author style changes quite a lot between my books, because, you know, despite the falling snow, or the world unseen is kind of quite... A little bit more, I say literary, but straightforward. I mean, not flowery, I think. But, you know, I, I use a lot of longer sentences and a little bit of, there's a flow to the language that was a bit different in Athena Protocol, where I use kind of shorter sentences because the, to, to kind of match the pace of the book, short sentences, short paragraphs. I'm a big fan of the end dash. I always kind of like that idea of, and then this. <laughs> and I also like semicolons. For that reason, there's just that extra little pause that you get that you don't get with a comma. So I use a lot of those, not always 100% correctly. My editor tells me, and they, you know, they go through and they copy edit everything 
to death and sometimes I put some back, I sneak some back in. But I love those two things. I love M dashes and, and colon, semicolons. And I guess there's a rhythm to those that, that does carry into movie making too. It's that editing is all about where, knowing just how long to, to keep that look or that moment before cutting to the next one. So, so maybe there's an equivalent. I haven't thought about it, but I will know. Gotcha. So that's, that's film semicolon is a uh, longer shot than normal before you do the uh, cut. Exactly. Maybe that is. And it's just that extra beat that gives you maybe an emotional moment. Yeah. And how does your approach change uh, when you, when you're getting up to, um, obviously filmmaking is its own separate thing. Um, but when you're getting up to work on a screenplay versus a novel versus now a musical, or I think you wrote the lyrics to a couple of the songs and, um, uh, in your first film as well. Yeah. So how does your does your approach change to writing those very different types of things? Um, I think that you know uh, the physical process of writing stays stays similar. In the whether I'm writing a screenplay or a novel, I always try to do it first thing in the morning and and get up, maybe go for a run or a walk to clear my head, to maybe listen to those Spotify playlists that I've been building that that have a meaning to that story for me. And then, um, you know, then I'll have something to eat and, and maybe scan the New York Times for a bit more inspiration and then head into my writing cabin and just try to get those, you know, those pages done so that by the time the rest of the day comes around, because once I find that once you get into email and I'll just do this and I'll just call that guy, it's just, you know, you, your writing time can go. So I'm kind of disciplined about doing that in the morning. Uh, but the process is, is much the same, I would say. So what time are you starting typically in the morning? Well, you know, I like to go to bed early and get up early. And I'm, I tend to be up by 6, most mornings, 6, 6.30, get out there, you know, get because I like to be, because it takes me a couple of hours, I guess, by the time I go to, you know, have a run, take a shower, have breakfast, all of that stuff. Uh, but I like to be, you know, at my desk by 8, 8.30 in an ideal world so that I can work through to lunchtime and know that I got a good solid block of creative work done. And the writing cabin, is that a short stroll from the house? Is it it's right like, out the back door? It's like five steps from the house. We don't have a huge garden, but this, uh, so this was, you know, over the last few years, my, my partner had now was always saying, why aren't you writing a book? Why aren't you writing a book? And I'm like, you know, it's impossible in the house. You know, we have two kids. You know, the, the doorbell's always going, you're always on the phone, somebody's always asking me something, or emails. And so she didn't say anything, but, you know, she's like, hmm. I was like, you know, it would be great to have a room of my own in the next house that we have, whenever that might be. And then suddenly these guys appeared, you know, with all these block, you know, planks of wood and stuff like that, and they started putting this thing up in the garden, and it was like the best Christmas present I ever got. Because it's, it's, it's beautiful, it's insulated, it's got heat and, and, uh, and light, and it just is kind of a separation. You know, I think when, you, when I go out there, I know that's what I'm going to be working on. I don't take my phone out there. Um, people know that they shouldn't come out and disturb me unless it's super, super urgent. And it's just, I think it's moving to a different headspace in, in that, you know, what Virginia Woolf talked about, a, a room of your own. It's so important. So it was a, it was a surprise cabin? Were you <laughs> able to have input into it by the, before it was done or...? Uh, a little bit, and the color of the, you know, but it's kind of, it's just a cute wooden cabin. I was just so thrilled to get to get that, you know, it was just literally the best present ever. So yeah, so it was it was a big surprise, and uh, it made a huge difference, honestly, to my writing and my output, because I think when you have kids and you have um, 
a busy life, you know, because we're juggling film. We have a film production company. Uh, so I write for film, I direct for film, I direct for TV, and and write novels. It's really great to have space that is just about that pure creative process. Do you um, do you handwrite, or do you take a computer out there? And if so, do you allow it to be on the internet? Uh, I do have a computer out there. I have a big screen, um, and I do have internet. It's it's rather slow, so it's not very tempting. But I it, I do find it important because sometimes I I want to just jump online and just check something quick while I'm writing, uh, or or do a bit of research. I'll even do my research out there as well. So yeah, I do have internet, but I don't have any email. Um, you know, any uh, notifications, any WhatsApp, anything like that. So it's just purely a link to the outside world. And I know that uh, the film industry uh, is a lot of hurry up and wait sometimes or a lot of, oh, we love this. Now let us put it through five more hurdles before we can get any kind of start date or anything else. So are you able to kind of write in the gaps while you're waiting for the stars to align to go move on the next project? Yes, that, that's exactly it. And I think that's what's so great about, about being able to do all these things is that I, I, you know, sometimes, you know, you write a screenplay and it's not like a month later it's in production. It's just, it drags as all the money gets put together, you have meetings, whatever. So during those downtimes, I'm always, we're developing other projects where um, I'm writing books. It's, it's great to be able to switch between the two. You know, when we uh, chatted with Greg Millman, who is also a screenwriter and, and filmmaker, yeah, um, <clears throat> he told me that he didn't even bother sending his book uh, to an agent or an editor. He said, no, I'm self-publishing. It's all 100% me. Nobody is weighing in on this thing. I'm doing this. <laughs> and it was a wonderful refuge uh, yeah. from, from, from that Hollywood lifestyle of uh, yeah. waiting until everybody gets on board. There is that, yeah. Listen, with the publishing industry, I think it's it's just tough to get into and, and tough to find that agent and that publisher for sure. Um, and I think self-publishing is so great that it gives you know voices to people that you know other people don't deem commercial enough to, for them to be with a with a publisher for whatever reason. So I think it's very important. But for me, I find a big difference between between even having an agent and a mainstream publisher. It's there's a lot more respect for the author in that process. And, you know, if there are edits, it's definitely what do you think about this? And if you know, and they'll give you suggestions and then lead you to it. And in the case of the Athena Protocol, I found that those edits were really helpful and helped elevate it to make it more than what I want of what I wanted. But in the movie industry, that kind of interference can sometimes be ridiculous or take you completely off the track of what you what you creatively had in mind. So which is partly why we, we worked as independent filmmakers with our company for such a long time. I suppose the flip side of that would be that uh, when you're working on your novel, it's all you. There's no wonderful actress to come in and and, and bring her piece to it. It's uh, whatever you've got up here is what you've got to work with, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's all, that's the, well, you know, it's, it's the writer is everything. And, but, you know, that's great, too. I, I think it's, that's, that's what our imaginations are for. So it's nice to be able to do that. And so I know your first full-length film was based on your novel, so I'm assuming you broke out as a novelist first and then a filmmaker? Uh, yes, I did. I did. So my, my, my first full-length piece of work was a screenplay, actually, based off a short story that had been published, and, um, and that got optioned, but it, it didn't get made. 
Um, and then while that was in progress, I was working on my first novel. And after that got sold and won a couple of prizes and, and, and you know, got some traction, um, I kind of just went forward. I was working as, uh, at another job. You had a day job at that point? Yeah, I did. I was working actually in my dad's company. It was financial services and stuff like that. It was not at all what I wanted to be doing. But I also, you know, you know, my parents had a strong work ethic. It wasn't like you could say, oh, I, I'm going to just stay home and be a writer. I felt like I had to prove myself. So once I'd had something optioned, I had some things published and my book was, you know, published as well. Then I felt, okay, I, you know, I, I want to just give this a go full time. So how many books did you have to write? before you got somebody interested in that first one, or was it the first one that you wrote? It was the first one. It was the first one. And I, you know, I, every writer goes through that rejection process of agents and, and publishers, and you know, that was no different, but you know, it was, it was pretty quick that I found an agent that really sparked to it, and then, you know, and then slowly, you know, we went along and we found the right publisher for it, and, and they really got behind it, and, and you know, were very lovely, a, a relatively small, publishing house but a very well respected one um, and, it, and it did great so when did you decide that you also wanted to do filmmaking or had you always wanted to do both I'd always wanted to do both and I you know I definitely um, had studied screenwriting uh, you know on my own and, and had you know been writing screenplays so I'd learned that craft early on and um, and then I got an opportunity to direct and I had just done a few course, short courses in directing it was something that I was thinking about for the future. But when this opportunity came up for I can't think straight, I just kind of thought, well, you know, how often is this going to happen? Let me give it a go. And, you know, it's insane on the one hand because I really, <laughs> it was my first time on a film set and I was the director. Um, and it was, it turned into a real baptism of fire because we, we had a torrid time on that movie. You know, we had a very difficult so-called investor. Um, you know, the classic first movie, days get chopped out of your schedule, you know, you're getting thrown out of locations, you know, you have one reel of film left to do too many shots. So it was just all chaos. But having got through it was probably the best film school ever. Just uh, get in there and survive. And then, okay, well, it didn't kill me. So, <laughs> and it went on to do very well. And now you're, you're developing it again into a, into a musical. So what is that process like? This, this story you've already told twice, getting ready to tell it uh, a third time in a new, in a new medium. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. Psychonic Straight is, is, was very loosely based on the story of, of me and Hanan. I now are, but made into a romantic comedy rather than the traumatic, you know, culture clash between two women of color who wanted to be together. It was a very difficult time with our families, but but I kind of thought, let me just explore that in a more comedic, romantic way. And so that's how I can't think straight came about. But I think the structure of it um, lends itself to being a musical. And my my manager uh, introduced me to a wonderful young woman who writes musicals for bo uh, books for musicals. And so she said, let's work on this together. So we're just still in the very early stages and just talking to a, a really talented composer who also worked on the movie. So, you know, I, I think musicals take years to get to get produced. So we're still in the very early stages, but I'm very excited about it because I love musicals. So it would be, and I think there's an East meets West theme there. I think it's a love conquers all. So I think it has everything that it needs to, to be really exciting. And then you'll be, I assume, writing the lyrics, or will you just be directing the film version, or how involved will you be? 
I don't know. Let's see. I mean, initially, I'll co-write the the musical, the the book of the musical with with uh, with this writer because you know it's not something that I have tremendous experience in. And then I I, I suspect the lyrics and the words will be primarily through the composer. But I'd love to get involved in some of that, given the choice. So let's see. I'll I'll do as much as they'll let me. <laughs> That's uh, what I'd love to do because I, I I did film school for a while right away. So I and I learned quickly that I'm not I'm not great with collaboration. I'm not okay with people impacting my my vision. Uh, so okay, there's a there's a solution for that. I'll go write novels and then I can be as, as selfish as I want to be, <laughs> which is wonderful. Okay. Um, but musicals, I just flat don't have the talent. I can't sing. I can't. But that is the thing I most would want to do because I'm in so in awe of other people who can do it well. Will this be a one and done for you, or will this be the start of a whole new career uh, in, in musicals? You think? Never say never, because I really love musicals. But you know, for me, I'm looking at this as being you know uh, a learning experience as well. Uh, I hope something that I can bring you know something to because I know the characters so well and I know the story so well. Um, but you know, at the same time, I'm interested to, to learn the process of how a musical gets written and gets made and gets financed and produced. So. Um, once I've been through that, maybe I'll want to do more. Or maybe I'll say never again. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope not. <laughs> and are there uh, other other uh, genres, other uh, forms of storytelling that you're yearning to do as well? Um, no, I think you know. I, I feel like right now um, is is a really interesting time in the film industry and the TV industry. And with this book coming out and it's really hitting the shelves, you know, with, with some great reviews, I feel like I have my hands full with all of these. I'm, I'm really looking forward to doing more TV directing as well. I'm directing my first TV show currently here in Toronto. Um, Can you say it was? Yes, it's a, it's a show called The Murdoch Mysteries, which is probably one of the most popular shows in Canada and around the world. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm coming in as one of the episodic directors on that. And it's been a fantastic experience so far. So... I think for now, you know, think, things are going, but I would never say never. I mean, you know, I, I love plays. I love uh, short form, you know, I think short form web webisodes have got a lot of uh, potential in the future. So, you know, I think I'm just, I'm open to just storytelling in whatever way makes sense for the story. So for the Athena Protocol, that was not meant to be a piece of literary fiction. It, in my mind, it was always an action adventure thriller with a message and with characters that you could care about. So I, you know, I'm happy to learn and adapt to genres and formats as I go, and I'm, I feel really privileged to be able to, to work across those. So I, I won't say no to anything as long as it makes sense for the story. Did you see yourself doing an Athena Protocol video game? Oh, very much so, very much so. I've got to, again, you know, those two sons, they'd be all over that. So yeah, I think this would be an amazing video game. I'd like to, I don't I'm not a much of a gamer, but you know, I've seen them play things like uh, The Last of Us and, and Biosphere, I think. Maybe I'm getting that wrong, I don't know. Bioshock. Bioshock, thank you. So <laughs> I'll they'll be like, oh but um but you know, those kind of very story based character driven games where you where you're running a one big quest and I think that could be really interesting because there's so many so many mission based things they could do. So yeah. Yeah, they're very uh, cinematic. You mentioned The Last of Us. That's the center of my whole next year of what's coming out is The Last of Us Part Two, and then there's everything else. (laughs) Actually, when my youngest son was reading Athena Protocol, he said, "You know, you should look at these." He said because this, you know, it it has you know has elements of the character plus the story, 
Um, and so, of course, I, there's no way I could start to get into playing that, you know, with the kind of, I thought if I get into that, I'll lose all my creative work time. So I just kind of read a little bit about it and watched a few videos about it. And he told me a lot about the story. And I thought, yeah, it looked really exciting. And, you know, that, I thought, what an interesting way to do a game. I would, I would much rather that than just kind of a, an app-based uh, video game. Yeah. Sure. I mean, it sounds like you can kind of do a little bit of anything you want. Well, <laughs> I can try. <laughs> <laughs> so you just wake up with uh, boundless enthusiasm for storytelling on, on a regular basis. And because you're, you're obviously you're working, you said it hadn't been a day off in quite a bit. So yeah. you must love it. Or you would at this point go back and do more financial services and okay. <laughs> call it a day. That's not going to be me. Listen, I do love it. And I think there's two things fueling that. One is that I, I'm excited that the last year or two has seen a real shift towards uh, content that's focused on women, content focused on diversity. And having spent the first 15 years of my career fighting for those things to be looked at seriously, fighting for the funding, fighting for people to be interested in distributing content like that. Now that people are turning around to me and going, hey, you're producing stuff like the Athena Protocol that we think is really cool, I'm, I'm excited by that. I really am. I think it's great because, you know, I, I don't talk about it too much, but it's been a slog in many, many ways. It sounds like a fairy tale story and I do this and I direct a film, but it hasn't been easy to get that content made because I don't want to compromise. I don't want to make one of them a man or make one of them white or, or whatever their, their, their requirements were. That was said to you with a straight face by someone? A hundred percent. I've had that. I've had, uh, can you de-gay that character? I've had all of these in bona fide meetings with people who are top of their field in this industry. Not the book industry, the film industry. So this, that just for me, as I wake up every morning thinking, thank God this didn't happen 30 years from now when I'm like, you know, maybe too tired to take advantage of it. <laughs> and then... <laughs> And the second part of that is intellectually and emotionally exciting for me. The second part of that is I've also had the last 15 years, 20 years bringing up kids. So, you know, that, I don't know if you have kids, but that's busy. Uh, you know, we've had help and I've, you know, my wife has been amazing uh, as, the, as the support on that. But, you know, they take it out of you. So now they're older. I wake up on a Saturday or Sunday you know, traditionally the days when I think, please let them sleep until 5.30. Now nobody wakes up before 11 or 12. And when they do, they don't need me to bath them, dress them, or tell them what to do. So I have all this time. And I still have probably more energy, I feel, than I did when I was 25. Um, so, yeah, I'm feeling like, you know, touch wood, this is a great time to be really focusing again on my career. And I have all this time that was devoted to family. You know, I still spend a lot of time with my family, but they need me less. And so I can come out and do a TV show or, you know, see them when they come back from school or university. But I've still got all this time during the day and I really want to make the most of it. Is your wife uh, working a job? Has she traditionally worked a job with health insurance and nice steady benefits while you've been uh, engaged in creative pursuits? Or? Uh, we're two insane risk. You know, we like two people who just run towards risk. We're absolutely insane. So there's been lots of sleepless nights. But on the plus side, I actually pushed her um, to, she's an entrepreneur. So she's always like starting businesses, run her own businesses. And I pushed her to become a film producer. So she's actually produced all of our films. 
So the great thing about that is we've worked together. We've been able to take our kids with us, say if we were shooting in South Africa 10 years ago. Um, the downside is no, there's no, there are no benefits with this job and there's no steady paycheck. So it's kind of, it's been up and down, but it's, but you know, I wouldn't trade it for the world. So she's still very much involved with everything that, that we're doing. Um, you know, and if we make TV or film together, she's, she's a very integral part of that creative and production side of things. And when you do that, can you come home and, and set it aside and just be, we're at home now, we don't have to talk about the production tomorrow or the rest of it? Or is it comforting to have somebody that knows exactly what has to happen for the shoot tomorrow and wants to talk about it? I think so. I, you know, in a way, I, I, I get that. And there are times when we just switch up and we'll you know, go to a movie or whatever. But most of the time we do talk about our work because we're both excited about it and passionate about it. Some, some days you just want to go, oh, please, don't ask me if I got that done or I got this done. You know, we just need to just give me a break. So, of course, there's always that. But I think we both work. We're very different people. She's very efficient. She's very spreadsheet. She's very on top of every everything being done on time. I'm a bit more. I need that time and space in order to be able to create the stories that we're that we're doing. So we try to respect that about each other. And and you know, so far so good. I know we're coming to the end of our time together, which which hurts because it's been such a fascinating conversation. I, I could I will go on asking you questions all day. I won't. How about two more and we'll call it a day? Is that is that fair? That sounds great. So my now there's a lot of pressure on him. I hope it's a good question. Uh, but I did want to circle back and ask you about public speaking because you you've given multiple TED talks available now. Esteemed audience, go watch them. They're they're worth seeking out. Uh, and you've done uh, several corporate speaking gigs. You've spoken, done speaking around the world. But you mentioned you're not an actress, uh, which strikes me because obviously you're not bothered by getting in front of people. So what is the secret to great public speaking? Since I know that terrifies a fair amount of the the audience who's listening. That just I just want to write my books. Don't maybe go talk about them. What's the secret to good public speaking, and why doesn't that lend itself to uh, to acting? Uh, so let me tell you. The first time I had to go on a radio show for the World on Scene, my first book, uh, they they sent a car to collect me, take me over to the BBC, put me in a studio. I thought I was going to die. I literally thought I was going to have a heart attack or throw up or just fall down dead on the street from the stress. And nobody was even going to see me on the radio, right? That was how, and I was painfully shy as a child and growing up. Um, and then my first book signing, uh, also, you know, I think it was at Hay Festival or one of those for the World Unseen. I didn't look anybody in the eye the entire time. I was just signing cripplingly embarrassed that people were anywhere near me and Hanan came up to me afterwards and she said you know you shortchanged those people and I was I was shocked and I said what do you mean you know and she's like they they queued for a long time to to get your autograph they really loved your book you didn't look at them you didn't talk to them uh she's like this is not all about you and that was kind of a big shift for me and I thought oh of course I've been so focused on I'm shy and I hate this and I, I don't want to talk to people and I don't know what to say that I wasn't thinking about their perspective, which is that they queued up. They would maybe like to get something a little bit more from me. And that shifted everything when I wasn't so focused on myself. And I was thinking about all these people who were here from to see me or here to listen to me. Everything became a little easier. Um, now, I didn't just leap onto a TED stage and give the perfect talk after that. But it was a bit that was a big evolution for me in, in my own getting over uh, talking in public. And, and it, it made me more interested in other people and asking, you know, what do you do? Or what did you like about the book? And 
you know, you get to learn a lot more that way. And, and it was, and it's nice for people to be able to have that interaction with somebody that they admire because if they bought your book and they liked it and they can be bothered for you to sign it, they, they clearly like something about you. So, you know, it's nice to have that connection. But with the TED Talks, I think it really, um, it helped me to have something that I really wanted to say. And and having seen the response to, I can't think straight the world and seeing now the Athena Protocol, it, it becomes easier and easier for me to understand the impact that storytelling has on people and how important it is to write role models that people feel represent them. Uh, especially in the work that I do with women, women of color, LGBTQ, there are a lot of people that weren't represented in the last 10, 15 years. So just being able to talk about that and, and the stories that I've heard about that and why it made me realize how important storytelling is, it got me over my fear and stress of standing on the stage and having to, you know, speak. And, and you know, you get better and better as it as you go along. And, and I try to focus on the message and what I want people to hear rather than, you know, the stress. But, of course, I get nervous. My heart's going a million miles an hour every time I get on the stage and you just you get better at hiding it and getting into the flow, you know, quicker. Just because you're focused on the importance of your message and the experience of the audience? Yes, and I, and I say that because I'm not superhuman. It's not like I think, oh, now I'll just, you know, get up and give that talk, you know. All but evidence I, to the contrary. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm always stressed about it. I'm always nervous about it. I'm always thinking about it for a day or two beforehand, uh, you know, nearly obsessively. And so it takes, it takes its toll and it takes its time. But you can get past that, and that's a natural part of the process. So people shouldn't feel that, oh, my God, I'm too nervous. It's something you can be. You can't be nervous. But I think if you focus about what it is that you want to say and what you want people to get out of it um, and the benefit you want people to get rather than how hard this is for you. It, I don't know. That made it easier for me. But, you know, that, that's the only advice I can give. That's tremendous advice. Yeah. I'm going to keep that in mind the next time I've got to speak up and I start to get nervous. Ah, yeah. quit making it about you. Can't get out there. <laughs> it's, a quick, it's a quick shift. <laughs> Uh, and then my uh, last question for you that I, I know you've got a book launch to prepare for, uh, so I'll, I'll let you get to it. Uh, but if there was one piece of advice that you could go back and offer uh, young you that would have made your journey easier, that would have that would have smoothed the way a little bit. What would that piece of advice be? Um, I think it would have been to take uh, to really focus on my craft and making it making my work as good as it can be as uh, earlier I think what I did early on was think was buy into the writers can't be just writers and so I spent a lot of time either you know working with my dad or or working in other businesses that Hanan and I had put together because in the back of my mind I was thinking I am never going to make money writing or whatever so I better have something else and I think if I had shifted my my perspective to think, no, let me think about how I can make this work, or what are the things that I can do uh, to make me so good that people can't ignore me as a writer. Um, I think maybe I would have put more time into my craft than into other things earlier. But, you know, so for young writers, I would say every hour that you can get, and I know it's not easy because people are often juggling family and work and all of these things, but don't waste hours spent, you know, what, you may want to watch TV because it's so damn good now, but don't waste time doing anything that is frivolous. You know, cherish your hours as if they were $100 bills. You wouldn't throw a $100 bill on the street. Don't throw away an hour of 
of your time. Um, because that hour could be spent learning something that will make you a better writer. Make, that might be the tipping point to making you know, making you irresistible to a big publisher or to a wider audience or to, you know, a film festival that will make the difference to your work. It's tremendous advice. I have so enjoyed this discussion. Uh, I wish I could talk, come back when the Athena, the next Athena Protocol comes out. I would love to talk with you again. I really appreciate you making time for us today. Uh, Shamim, where uh, can esteemed audience find you online, stock you, buy all your books and all that good stuff? Well, anywhere where you can write out my full name, shamimsarif.com. Uh, it's S-H-A-M-I-M-S-A-R-I-F.com. So that's my Twitter handle and Instagram handle. And those are the places I'm most active. I also have a Facebook page where we have our 50,000, an amazing community on there. Uh, but Twitter, Instagram, and uh, Goodreads, please. I always am very happy to have... Anybody who loved the Athena Protocol, always a five-star review on Amazon or Goodreads is always appreciated. And if you have something to say about those, please reach out to me on any social media. It is me, and I will always get around to answering. Wow. Anybody can, can reach out to you on social media, and you'll, you'll for sure answer them? I will always do one once for the direct message, but I prefer it if it's just like, you know, in the main, in the main social media, uh, media arena because I just don't have time to – answer direct messages on an ongoing basis with people that I that I don't know because you know there's quite a lot of followers now which is great but come join me there we have an incredible community of people there have been a lot of people who've made friends through through getting to know each other over my books and movies and it's it's a very special group so I would love to see people at Atrimus Reef wherever wherever it makes sense for them. Get in there now esteemed audience the Athena uh, protocol is about to blow up huge, and then we will never get within uh, shouting distance of Shamim again. <laughs> so now's the time. But I'm still there. <laughs> uh, as always, esteemed audience, uh, head to middlegradeninja.com. Check out who's listed to appear on the podcast in the near future. Uh, don't forget to download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees and or the Book of David, Chapter 1. They're free. Get both. It'll be fun. Uh Shamim, I have been asking our guests to sign us off with the uh, very ninja-like sign-off phrase, hi-ya and what have you. Will you sign us off? Hi-ya and what have you. Mm -hmm.